week's episode of the Compass Equip podcast. I'm going solo today without Pastor Evan. He is out on vacation, and I would encourage you, church, to be praying for him when you think about him, that he would be having a great rest, and he will join us soon, refreshed and ready to get back to work. But for us, nothing has changed. At Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Well, as we continue the Summer on the Mount, we are getting to the topic of divorce. It's a big topic. It's a touchy topic in our culture, but it's a topic that our Lord, our Savior, desires to probe the depths of and bring us back to God's original intent for marriage. And so that brings us to that preaching point of today's sermon, that for all of us, that a personal commitment to God's original intent for marriage is a necessary component of faithfully following Jesus. We have a lot of opinions, and I have a lot of opinions, and I know that each of us listening to this podcast has a lot of things they would like to say, but we always got to remember that we're going to say what God's Word says. And as long as we stick to that, as long as we focus on what God's Word says, we are going to end up on the right side of this topic. And with that being said, let's get to the right side of that topic by getting into the Word. Matthew 5, 31 through 32 says this, It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is Jesus bringing up the topic of divorce and the idea of of dissolving a marriage uh, for any reason. And this is often what the argument was during that time period, as you heard in the sermon, that the two parties... Uh, Shammai and Hillel had differing views of uh, this uh, this text that Jesus is drawing from in Deuteronomy 24, and he is making clear to them, let's get this back to the original plan. Let's get this back to God's intent for the marriage covenant. And then what he then says in verse 32 is significant for us because we say, when we read this, we're asking the question, what is a reasonable, what is a allowance for divorce? And Jesus makes it clear that there is one, and it is for sexual immorality. And we ask, why is that? And we say, because sexual immorality is a breach of the marriage covenant based upon the reason for marriage. Marriage is that the two should become one flesh, and that is an ontological conversation, right? That is, a, I exist now not as two, but as a one flesh, that I am now recognizing that not only sexually am I now conjoined, but in a real way, God has desired to unify the husband and the wife, right? Not that we are, uh, not that we are joined at the hip physically, but in a real spiritual way that we have, uh, we have forfeited our autonomy and we have become one. And so when I commit sexual immorality and I, I commit adultery, that I'm breaching that and I'm allowing uh, I'm allowing something outside of that covenant to break into that covenant and to dissolve it. Although the, the, the certificate of divorce has not been handed, we, in a real spiritual way, in a real sinful way against God's original design, have, uh, in effect, absolved that marriage covenant. Not that that marriage covenant could not be redeemed or that it could not be uh, resolved compassionately through forgiveness and redemption, but that in effect, that's why the sexual immorality is a cause for divorce, because you have breached the very marriage covenant 
in which God has designed it for, and that is to be fruitful and multiply, uh, to create the intimacy and the oneness of the flesh. And so there's a real good reason why we see this as the exception as far as the design of marriage goes from Genesis. This comes away in three teaching points throughout the sermon. Number one, that we need to recover God's permanent design for marriage. When we think about divorce, we always have to first think about marriage. We can't think about divorce without the context of marriage because there is no such thing as divorce if marriage was never uh, was, was never on the table. And so if we want to recognize what is divorce and how does the Bible talk about divorce, we need to recognize how the Bible talks about marriage. Marriage being that permanent design for marriage, that permanent, lifelong, monogamous relationship between a male and a female allows us to begin laying down a framework of what marriage is. And marriage, then from there, we can look and say there's a fruitfulness about marriage that is necessary for us that we see in Genesis that teaches that man is not meant to be alone. So as he created a woman out of the rib of man and he had brought her to the man and the man had cried out and he said, Alash, here is a bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he had called her woman because she had come in had come out of the man. And the two were in the garden, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. What a wonderful picture of the innocence and the bliss of marriage undefiled by sin. And so as we recover God's permanent design for marriage, when we see it unpolluted with sin, and we see it pursuing the permanency that God has called us to, and also called us to the holiness and the the, the, the sexual fulfillment of marriage, we recognize this as such a wonderful gift when we understand how God has originally designed it. And then we recognize also that marriage is always is meant to produce children, childbearing. And we see that that in the commandment there in the creation account, that Jesus or that God looks down and he says, uh, be fruitful and multiply. There's the reality of the marriage covenant that we'd be fruitful and be multiplying. And so you can even see there in some very real uh, transparent realities that as we're committing sexual morality towards one another, especially throughout history, it's only been a few years where we've been able to actually do DNA tests. Can you imagine people committing adultery and not knowing whose child is whose? Well, this is a a very uh, large breach in the marriage covenant and the family family, uh, dynamic throughout history. And so sexual... Uh, fidelity did did more uh, than just kept a marriage uh, together. It created the very fabric of uh, of the family unit, and is very important. Not to mention the spiritual realities that go along with that. And so, recovering God's permanent design for marriage is going to help us so much in understanding. Uh, divorce and understanding how we ought to look at marriage and how we ought to pursue marriage and how we ought to think about divorce uh, in light of Scripture and in light of divorce. All divorce comes in light of sin. And if I hate sin and if I'm doing away with sin, I need to repent from sin. I'm going to find that as I run away from sin, divorce becomes such a small, small target um, and such a small option in the life of the believer. Not that there are none. There are exceptions to that. There are allowances for that. And I, as a pastor, would never uh, disallow, uh, although I, as Christ, would discourage, I would never disallow uh, permissible divorce, although I would always encourage redemption 
uh, and reconciliation in relationships. Secondly, we need to honor marriage as a reflection of Christ in the church. And I think this whole picture that I that builds off of what I had just said about this idea of understanding the permanent design for marriage and recognizing that divorce comes when sin comes and God's design is always for the reconciliation and redemption of relationships. First and foremost, the one that we have with Christ, that Christ has saved us and redeemed us and restored our relationship with him. So therefore, that should be always be the aim of our relationship, particularly in our marriage covenant. And that's why I come to the conclusion of saying that the target for divorce, the, the category for divorce is very, very small. And even with that small category is also an allowance, not God's desire, not the plan. Because if we can be forgiven for anything, then we in our marriage as they reflect Christ in the church should also be able to forgive anything. And there are those weak in the, in the faith that it comes to a place where they can't do that. And there is therefore an allowance, but not God's desire, not the plan. The plan is redemption, restoration, and the plan is uh, fleeing and forsaking sin. And thirdly, that last point there, tenaciously guard your marriage covenant. I believe that if we would intently focus in with our heart, our mind, and our strength in our marriages, that we would esteem them as Hebrews 13 teaches us to do and honor them, that we're going to find a lot less uh, divorce conversations out there because we see marriage as God sees marriage. And I'm going to guard it because of the permanent nature of it and the reflection uh, that it that it clarifies when, within the relationship of Christ and the church. When my marriage is, uh, is at its best, when I'm living my marriage out according to Scripture, I, I say something about the character of God. And so therefore, I want to tenaciously guard my marriage as a glorifying entity in this world to bring people to understand something about God that they may, uh, they may not know uh, if they didn't see a marriage that it would honor the Lord. I may have said it a little bit more at the 11, but uh, cre- uh, I said it at the 9, at least in part, is this idea that marriage is a universal, uh, a universal command that God has given to all creation. Not just Christians get married, but also non-Christians. And therefore, uh, marriage should be seen often, even like Romans says, uh, as a creation reality, as uh, as Romans 1, when it talks about uh, being able to see God and know God to an extent uh, without having special revelation, because we have general revelation that says something about God, we should understand marriage in that same way. And so I'm going to look for it for a moment. Uh, and in verse in Romans 1, 19, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to these people, these ungodly and the unrighteous people who want to suppress the truth. What can be known about God has become plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so they know God. They just don't want to honor God or give thanks to him. And instead, they want to think the way they want to think. Marriage, I, I can argue, and I would not argue, even as it, it's the creation mandate of God for all people to get married, uh, for all people through all time to exercise the covenant of marriage, shows and reflects the relationship between Christ and his bride. And so, in a real way, our marriages here are, are serve as a creation reflection. It's one of those... Uh, general revel- or natural revel- revelations, one of those general revelations of, oh, when I look at a marriage, 
even a non-Christian marriage where a husband is sacrificing for his wife and a wife is loving her husband, I begin to get an inclination of the attributes of God, the power of God, the divine nature of God, how God has created man and woman. Uh, and I can find some some real divine characteristics uh, that will show me that God is real, that I fall short of God, and God had a, a design and a plan, and I need to submit myself to God through Jesus Christ. I think marriage also will help in that as much as when we look at the universe or creation or the mountains or the sunset. And as we tenaciously guard our marriage covenant, we honor it, we glorify it, we recognize that it's a part of God's creation, and it actually helps people see something about God that they would not see if not for marriage, that it gives us more reason to tenaciously guard our marriage covenant. I've uh, got a question from the congregation. Uh, I have one question coming at the 9 o'clock service and uh, that we said we'd love to answer your questions if you submit them uh, during service or shortly after. And uh, this first question is, uh, when it comes to wives submitting to their husbands, what if the husband is asked them to sin? I think this is a simple answer, but but a question that deserves our attention uh, because we recognize that that privilege and stewardship of the husband to lead his wife and that she would submit herself under his care and nurture and leadership, that that husband is also held to the accountability of righteousness, of uh, integrity in his dealings with his wife. And we find here, if a husband's asking the wife to sin, then we are not living with integrity. We are actually sinning by causing, as Christ says, even the least of these to stumble. It would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the heart of the sea. So we see uh, Christ's view of causing anyone to sin, particularly the bride whom is called by Scripture to submit herself under her husband, we find that if a husband's asking the wife to sin, we find ourselves in a very, very dangerous grave spot, and that husband would find himself underneath the discipline, if he's a Christian, and the judgment of God if he's not a Christian. Uh, And just a a message to the wives here, it's like, if anything your husband is leading you to do that isn't sin, it is incumbent as that as the reflection of the church to say, hey, if this is what my husband's asking, I'm going to do everything within my ability to submit to that in as much as he's not asking me to sin. Because in that same vein, the husband is going to love and nurture and cherish that wife that, that he has, and he's going to love her and care for her and make sure she's taken care of. And so that reality of that reflection of living out my roles and living out my design is indicative of, of a healthy marriage and the reflection of Christ and the church. So good question. Super glad that we can answer that question for you in this podcast. As you guys jump into your application questions, uh, you have uh, five application questions, uh, simple in their form, but I pray that what they will do is they will provide an abundant opportunity for follow-up questions and for dialogue that can uh, sustain you throughout not only your life group, but over the next few weeks as you begin uh, percolating uh, and chewing on the topic of divorce and remarriage. I think we, we focus on a couple things in your life group. Uh, in these application questions is how does the redeemed heart deal with marriage? How does uh, the Holy Spirit change how I deal with conflict in my marriage? Um, how does a high view of the Bible and the permanency of marriage challenge prevailing ideas of the world? So how does my understanding of Scripture and God's design for marriage challenge what the world tells me about divorce and remarriage and how can I allow uh, how can I allow myself the opportunity to grow in my understanding when it comes to biblical marriage and then how is that going to actually help me 
have conversations with family and friends and even your own in your own conversations in your heart and your mind come to a biblical conclusion concerning divorce and remarriage, etc. I have a couple of resources, a couple of academic resources, uh, but maybe they'd be helpful uh, for you. In my doctorate degree that I've been pursuing over the past few years, uh, I had to do a lot of research on the topic of divorce and remarriage in Scripture. And so a book that I found uh, helpful was a book by Instone Brewer, by David Instone Brewer, called Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. The social and literary context could be helpful as you begin studying that Uh, there are a number of books that I would encourage you to read. Um, There's a lot of great marriage books. Piper has a good marriage book. Uh, Timothy Keller, uh, before he passed, him and his wife had made a good marriage book. uh, And we we have uh, Peacemaking for Families by Ken Sandy. Those are just some really good, helpful books to uh, help your marriage, maybe build up your marriage. But as, as far as the books on divorce, I think that David Instone Brewer book is good for you to begin uh, taking that uh, trajectory on learning about divorce. Uh, Remarriage After Divorce in Today's Church uh, is, a, is a compilation of writers, uh, Strauss, Wenham, uh, Gordon, and, and William Keener have all uh, partnered together to talk about the different views of remarriage after divorce in Scripture uh, in light of uh, what Scripture says to the church. And then... Uh, Divorce and Remarriage, the last one I have for you. Uh, Divorce and Remarriage, Biblical Principles and Pastoral Practices. You have Andrew uh, Corns has written that book. Just a couple of resources uh, for you there. But, uh, you know, what I would encourage you to do is you have a high view of God. You're going to learn that you will, uh, by uh, default, have a high view of marriage. So I encourage you as you read Scripture, as you're reading great books about our Holy Lord, that you also grow in your great love and honor and zeal for the marriage covenant. Compass, I am so grateful that you are sticking with us. We know there are some hard topics. We know that the Sermon on the Mount talks about the hard things, which is something that we love about what God does, is he doesn't leave anything untouched in our lives, including uh, the tough topics. And so as you're sticking with us, we we hope you are learning. We hope you are being encouraged and exhorted and convicted. We hope all of this it brings glory to the name of God and is helpful in your pursuit of Christ in your relationship with him. We love you. We look forward to seeing you guys next week.